This year, the world's attention has shifted towards our global drive to net zero, with the United Nations describing it as a make or break year for action on climate change. Despite COVID-19, net zero commitments have roughly doubled. Many countries are currently determining how green stimulus can best support economic recovery. And in November, world leaders will gather at COP26 to coordinate action to stop the rise in global temperatures. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese. And in this episode of If Win, we demystify the terminology surrounding decarbonization and discuss some of the major challenges and opportunities facing the world today. Our guests include Jens Nielsen, CEO of the World Climate Foundation, Zoe Haisman, Jacobs Vice President for Global Sustainability, and Pete Adams, Jacobs Global Market Director for Power. Thank you all for joining me today. Uh, Zoe, to kind of start us off, I want to kind of set the table on, on what net zero is and what it means and, and why it's pertinent to, uh, to our discussion. So there have been a lot of conversations around reaching net zero but what does this mean and why is it important? Thanks, Paul. Great to be here speaking to you today. So to best explain this term, let's just take a step back and first explain the context. Decarbonisation and net zero stem from the urgent need for us to tackle the climate crisis, all the impacts of climate change and the risks that these pose to our society. The climate crisis is the world's most critical challenge right now, um, and we need to overcome it if we're to secure a sustainable future for society. The impacts of climate change are unfortunately unfolding in front of us more and more frequently already. Um, We're seeing increasingly erratic climate events that have had huge consequences for society. You know, from the recent flooding in Sydney and Australia or the southern US winter storms, just to mention a couple. And these will have dire impacts on people, you know, whether it's cutting power to millions and destroying property and homes, and in many cases causing tragic loss of life. The economic, environmental and social costs of climate change are enormous. And it's human activity that's causing this climate change and our global glowing economy further fuels it. The emissions that we're generating globally contribute to global warming and our changing climate. To stop further and frankly catastrophic climate change in the future, we need to transform how we live and function on Earth to reduce and eventually stop the source of emissions that are causing this climate change. So it's this reduction and ultimately the end to harmful emissions that is called decarbonisation and how we reach net zero. And zero is the amount of emissions that we have to aim for and achieve. Hmm. So what is uh, what's the net part of net zero? So the net zero part, the net part means achieving a balance between the amount of greenhouse gases or carbon emissions produced and the amount removed from the atmosphere. And there are two different routes to achieving net zero, which work in tandem, reducing the existing emissions and then actively removing greenhouse gases. A a zero target would mean reducing all emissions to zero. But unfortunately, at this time, this is not realistic. So instead, the net zero target recognises that there will be some emissions, but that these need to be fully offset, predominantly through natural carbon sinks such as oceans and forests. When the amount of carbon emissions produced are cancelled out by the amount removed, then an organisation or country is a net zero emitter. The lower the emissions, the easier this becomes. How does decarbonisation fit into all of this? Decarbonisation is the term that describes how we get to net zero. It's how we reduce the emissions that we produce. And there are many ways of doing that depending on the type of organisation and industry. 
The primary challenge, though, for countries and governments and how we'll make the biggest shift in society in decarbonisation is through the energy transition. And that is how we move from a fossil fuel economy to ultimately a clean energy economy or a net zero economy. So while efforts are underway by the energy industry to decarbonise power and decarbonise the grids all over the world, there's also a lot of things that organisations can do as well. And that is really how they tackle their own emissions. So if we look at an example, let's take a beverage company as an example. Um, Emissions are produced throughout the whole life cycle of producing a drink. So all the processing activities consume energy to run the operations. They also consume water, which further results in emissions. You've then got the transportation of the ingredients into the factory, as well as then the distribution of the final product out to retailers. And all of that transportation has huge emissions um, related to it as well, all that activity. You've then got to power, think about how you power the warehouses and the refrigerators within the warehouses. Again, all energy consuming activities and finding, really finding the best ways to reduce that at source um, through energy efficiency is key to organisations and their decarbonisation journey. There are the emissions that the suppliers um, who produce the ingredients also have to think about. So really that supply chain impact um, of the activities as well. Then you've got the workforce. So the people who work at this organisation travelling in um, to work every day from their home. So to decarbonise an organisation like this one, for example, the company's going to have to think about operational efficiency throughout the whole of the manufacturing process and life cycle to really reduce energy consumption and emissions at source. They might have to think about investing in renewables at the factory as well to start generating their own clean energy. They also might want to look at things like incentivising their employees to use public transit where available for the commute to work rather than single occupancy car use. And then they can look at their supply chain and how they might wish to switch logistics providers to a clean energy supplier. So these are just some of the ways a business like that one can continue to make the transition towards decarbonisation. Yeah, and I've uh, I've actually been um, privileged to speak to various guests uh, on the show about you know things like nuclear energy and small modular reactors and and various other uh, ways that the energy sector is trying to um, think about how we can uh, you know have a more beneficial energy production in terms of the environment. And so, Pete, you know, uh, want to bring you in on this. Um, you know, what's driving the world to act? You know, we've heard from Zoe that reducing the impacts of climate change uh, are the biggest drivers, but globally we've been relatively slow to respond, perhaps, you know, from when you think about all the various players involved. Um, however, it feels like over the last couple of years, there's been uh, a greater increase in the momentum. And so what, what's changed? Well, hi, Paul, and, and thanks for the opportunity to talk to you this afternoon and, and, and uh, for the, those people listening. We, we have been working on this for some time. It, it isn't something which we've uh, just picked up in the last couple of years, but I guess the rate of change that we've seen in the, in, in the, in the last couple of years has been really, uh, really been prevalent, and, and we're seeing that here within the, within the Jacobs family as well. Um, we could sort of break it down into sort of push and pull factors. Um, so maybe we'll start with some of those push factors to start with. So in recent times, we've seen a real drive with regards to legislative change. 
um, started with things like the Paris Agreement, and that's transitioned into 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 regional governments really driving driving things as well. I mean, some great examples that we've seen in recent times. Singapore's just come out with their green plan, which is setting a vision out to 2030. We've seen the UK come out with their energy white paper, which is linked to their 10 point plan. And, and, and those are just two to mention. You, you see that around, around the globe. Um, so there's that legislative change. That's the first piece. Um, we also see in sort of some of the things that Zoe talks about, which are, you know, there's real tangible indicators that climate change is real. It's here. It's mm. not some fictional thing that we've made up. And the do nothing approach isn't good enough anymore it's actually we have to do something to do nothing is, is more expensive than actually the the changes that we need to make to so the systems and the processes to turn us into a, a cleaner greener society and, and, mm. and it's a real really there um and and how we fund them is also really important so clean finance and and green funds are are, are, are there but our investment community is really is really also driving this Mm -hmm. um, and, and a really great example of that is the, uh, the recent BlackRock uh, paper, or not paper, letter that it sent out to, to, to companies where asking them or encouraging them to, to, to demonstrate their models that they're using to, to keep the, the climate uh, warming to, to less than two degrees by um, 2050. Mm -hmm. So those, those are a few of the, 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 the push factors, as we would say. But on the other side, there's some pulls as well. So reducing emissions from a cost base you know we've seen the drop in in renewables so it's becoming more and more affordable um, reducing our consumption as a society and, and making sure manufacturing is, is using less and, and supposedly less actually generates savings and and those savings can then be reinvested back into to business to stimulate growth mm -hmm. um, and we know that growth is one of the key things which are which drives modern society and modern economy so again we're seeing some of those pulls and then I guess last but not least is one which sort of sits quite, quite, quite warm when I thought about some of this stuff is, 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 the, um, is the honest generation and the, the knock-on effect that it's having. Mm -hmm. So if you take my children, the, the, the way that they feel about things and the way that they, they, they consume now, they want to know that it's coming from a sustainable supply. And that has a net impact, impact on, on, on how parents will buy and then how their parents are buying. I'm actually seeing that in my own family. It's mm -hmm. quite an interesting fact. I had a conversation with my mother the other day with regards to, um, uh, she was changing electricity supply. And she was very, very proud of the fact that she could say to her grandchildren, you know what, I've gone with a, with a, with a clean green um, supplier of electricity. Made me proud because that's part of my job. But um, like just you're seeing that societal change, that, that push, the honest generation is really, really interested in and where we're getting things and, and what's going on in their backyard. Mm, that's, that's amazing, you know, because it's like you're seeing that in a microcosm, right, in the, at the family level. But on, in the macro level, you're seeing this push really in the investment community. Our ESG has really come to the forefront and uh, investors and, you know, financiers are really focused on on this topic and related topics and and so it's you know driving behavioral changes um now Jens, we've seen a big shift from policy you know from talking about this uh to acting on it and particularly in relation to net zero what are some of the biggest positive changes that you've seen and what are some of the the remaining challenges Thank you, Paul, and thank you for being able to participate uh, on this important podcast. 
I'd like to add a few more perspectives uh, to what the people was, uh, was, uh, was mentioning. Mm -hmm. uh, but let me first start by going back to uh, the years just prior to the Paris Agreement on Climate Change in 2015. I think in a, in a crude way, you could characterize the stance of stakeholders then, and that was no matter whether you were talking about states, cities, businesses, financial institutions, or whatever, almost all followed a uh, normal distribution. Uh, at one end, of the spectrum, you had 15 to 20% that was pro a global agreement. At the other end, you had 15 to 20% which was against uh, in reality. And then in the middle, the remaining six to 70% were sitting on the fence, looking towards the other two groups on who they should follow. With the Paris Agreement, we got a platform and a process on which to work on collectively. The difference from then to now is that what is emerging is a majority of actors in every field that are aligning with the Paris Agreement. So I would say you kind of have a crowd effect, you have a snowball effect, and you have much more organizations that wants to be leaders in their field, mm -hmm. at least when we look at non-state actors, uh, so corporations and financial institutions, etc. cetera. Uh, in terms of countries, hopefully, with the US now solidly back on the climate agenda under the new Biden administration, then US can take the lead on large emitting countries to all commit to ambitious commitments or the NDCs and national determined distributions as you call them to be submitted this year uh, at COP26 in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. so, so I would add um, sort of the, 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 the crowding factor as such. The other factor that I think has been important is, uh, is actually um, the general public uh, through um, uh, its role as or our role as voters and our role as consumers, especially the pressure from the younger generations, uh, the effect of Greta Thunberg and Fridays for Future has added, um, has played a key role in, in the last couple of years. Um, and I, I especially think that businesses have been quite responsive and are, of course, need to be responsive to their future consumers also. So I will add that as a, as a second major factor. Uh, to to uh, to what Pete was was mentioning. In terms of what um, is impressing me now, I think in particular the many coalitions that we see for net zero uh, within specific industries, but also for the financial sector that are that is hugely important for for pushing uh, investments towards uh, towards greener areas, but also to fund the uh, transition uh, in hard to abate sectors. And then I think actually that the, the UK and, uh, and UNFCCC that are behind the global negotiations are doing a great work in campaigning uh, for net zero commitments uh, up to COP26. Mm. Mm. Okay. And then you, um, you asked um, uh, a second part that was, uh, what, what do I see in terms of re remaining challenges? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I would say that in addition to the net zero commitments uh, by 2050 or shorter, it's, it's, it's really the long-term view. We need specific plans and actions to drive uh, CO2 emissions down in the shorter term now until 2030. So we need to, to reduce emissions at least by 50 or 55% over the next 10 years. So it's really a crucial decade uh, that we have now. We need countries to, to not only come with ambitious uh, net zero commitments at COP26, we also need them to start working on, on um, real national implementation plans. Uh, uh, Pete was mentioning Singapore, I can mention my home country. Uh, Denmark um, 
which last year implemented a, an actual climate law demanding a 70% reduction by 2030. Mm -hmm. We need uh, corporations to do uh, real decarb decarbonization, uh, so deep decarbonization, and then we need investors to to invest invest much more in the green in the green sector and in the finance in the, in transition to transition of the hard to abate sectors. And uh, an important trigger for this short term change is of course a strong a strong focus on investing mm -hmm. in green recovery after COVID nineteen. In particular, investing in, in the sustainable infrastructure that can have lasting and wider effects in greening our societies. Hmm. So, you know, when you think about the, the, or at least when I do, and, and I have a pedestrian understanding of, you know, the issues concerning um, how our, our, our energy production uh, resources and sector impact uh, the global climate. You know, and obviously, you know, things like fossil fuels can be problematic uh, and, and having a disbalanced um, energy portfolio and how we produce our goods and how we run our economies can, can obviously accelerate the problems. And, um, you know, conversely, if we have more clean energy production can, uh, can help in the effort to decarbonize. Um, you know, I want to ask you, Pete, to to ruminate for a moment on, on energy, you know, and energy production, and you know, we're so reliant on electricity, we're so reliant on energy to power our vehicles, um, you know, to, to then run the global economy. So, you know, can you give us some thoughts on where we need to go with energy production and how energy production fits into the decarbonization efforts? Yeah, it's actually a really, topical conversation because my team are actually having a number of thoughts around this at the moment so broadly speaking um, electricity currently is about a third of all carbon emissions mm -hmm. um, and as we look to what Joe, Zoe was saying um, earlier as you decarbonize the other industries the, the look towards um, electricity as a clean fuel source drives demand mm -hmm. um, so we're going to see that demand increase, which is something certainly in the Western world we haven't seen in great, in great shapes for, for many decades. In fact, we've seen a decline in some, in some countries as energy efficiencies come in. Mm -hmm. So that's an important aspect to take. So we need to consider that increase. Now, depending on where you are in the world, um, new sources of renewable energy are more prevalent than others. Um, but generally speaking, mm -hmm. energy isn't the problem. It's energy at the right time of the day that, that is your challenge with, with a system perspective. So there's two sides to this, this equation. Mm -hmm. There's we can continue the way that we work in, in, in today's society. So as we come home from, from, from work or wherever, we turn on the lights and we turn on the heating and we expect everything to work. Mm -hmm. um, and that to, to cover that, we increase generation. So we ramp up our, our generation capacity. But that only really occurs at certain times of the year. Mm -hmm. There's an alternate method to this is to turn around and say, yes, we need to increase our generation so you can, so you can meet that demand, that, that demand which is required. But if we change our societal behaviors using modern technology, you can actually tailor the demand to meet the generation needs. So there's a two-sided equation to this. So it's not just about the generation, it's actually also about what you do demand side. Mm -hmm. And modern technology helps us with, with those sorts of things. So there's a societal change as well, which is needed. Um, 
that might not have 100% answered your question in a way, but I think it's really important piece to get across that there's there's two parts to this this equation from a from an energy transition perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's very relevant because uh, so much of it is behavioral, and um, you know, Yins, I'm going to kind of segue to you on this because you know we're talking about global cooperation between you know governments and corporations, and you know there are a myriad of competing financial and national interests, right? Uh, and so to reach net zero. It seems to me, you know, that we need strong collaboration from all markets and a whole range of these stakeholders. But, you know, it's, the question is like, how do we get there? So, can you tell us about the World Climate Foundation's focus on cross-sector partnerships? How has that been working, and and you know, how are how is it helping to promote coalition building in this endeavor? Um, thanks. Uh, let me start by. Uh by an example. Uh, so uh, we have been working on something we call the Climate Investment Coalition for the past couple of years uh, mm-hmm. in partnership with the Danish government and the Danish pension funds and uh, also international pension funds. And um, in 2019, uh, that work led to a uh, groundbreaking commitment from the Danish pension funds of wanting to invest 50 billion US dollars in uh, in clean energy and climate investments over the next 10 years. Um, and um, uh, I would say that happened on a background uh, where the Danish pension funds already have invested quite a large amount of money in uh, clean energy investments. Uh, but it was also a conditional commitment that depended on the right regulatory framework. Uh, and that's a clear example that uh, that for these to unleash these investments, it requires uh, the quite the the, the 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 correct regulatory framework, and therefore often creating low carbon markets that is uh, that is dependent on the public and private sector working mm-hmm. together in defining these new markets and creating these new markets. Um, I also want to say in that coalition, uh, we now uh, work not only with uh, with uh, pension funds or. Other asset owners, we also work with asset managers, we work with developers and technology companies and then governments because you need this whole ecosystem of, um, of stakeholders to mm-hmm. jointly or, or to join forces to create the new markets and, uh, and, uh, and find solutions for, uh, for the net zero economy. So that's a specific example on, on, on how we work. So in general, we work with, with leaders from government and business, financial institutions and civil society on those kinds of coalitions and partnerships. And we do see also major transformative power through this public-private interplay. Uh, and we, we are working with a concept that we, we call, or it's called ambition loops, where you have business and government that work to mutual benefits in attaining higher aspirations in moving to new net zero market structures and business models. Hmm. So it, it seems to me that, you know, it, it takes a little bit of innovative and creative thinking, but that there are opportunities to explore new markets and to create new income opportunities. Um, you know, first and foremost, though, there has to be a, the will to find them and uh, to pursue them and to make them a reality. Um, now, Jens, I know that Jacobs is is working to uh, partner with you and your team at the World Climate Foundation this year. Uh, 
Can you speak to some of the outcomes from previous events and what are you looking forward to the most this year? We've been doing the, the World Climate Summit for, for more than 10 years in a row uh, at the COP and uh, we have built up a, a very strong community of key decision makers with the focus on solving climate change. And uh, throughout the years, we have delivered a range of, uh, of commitments to reduce carbon and financial commitments also. We have developed a number of partnerships, but also many actual deals um, on this platform and uh, have been carrying that out in, in over 15 uh, coming clean economy markets. This year, I'm looking forward to mainly three things. First, carrying through our roadmap to COP26, um, that is uh, the three regional world climate forums for Europe, North America, and Asia, uh, with a focus on developing public-private partnerships on green recovery and implementing regional climate ambitions. <clears throat> In these cases, uh, the Biden's Build Back Better Plan and EU's Green New Deal and Asia's uh, net zero commitments um, across uh, advanced Asian countries. Uh, second, uh, I look forward to launching uh, our platform for public-private partnership on biodiversity, which is an, uh, an upcoming uh, strong area for public-private collaboration in Kunming, in China, in October. And then finally, of course, uh, hopefully uh, celebrate ambitious commitments at COP26 in Glasgow, governments, business and finance that puts us on a track to achieve net zero by 2050. And for, for all of this, we are extremely pleased to work with Jacobs uh, as a global partner. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Jens, Zoe, and Pete, I want to thank you all for joining me today and leading me through a discussion on decarbonization and net zero and climate change and sharing your expertise and looking forward to learning more about this and, and seeing the great work that Jacobs and the World Climate Foundation will be doing together. So thank you so much.